Thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikraman Sharmani. The podcast was started in early 2020 to share some of the ideas from his most recent book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, which is available for purchase via Amazon, bookshop.org, and most other retailers. This episode is the audio portion of a webinar hosted by Dr. Mancha Ramani on October 29th with Roger Martin, a world-leading management scholar and the author of One More Is Not Better. The video replay of the discussion is available at www.mancharamani.com. Okay, so thank you everyone for joining. Uh, I am thrilled to have another uh, uh, session of this Think for Yourself webinar series. And my guest today is Roger Martin. Uh, Roger, and we'll get into his background, is a storied academic in the business landscape and has written uh, a ton of wonderful uh, material and also has had huge influence on the profession of business academia by serving as the Dean of the Rotman School at the University of Toronto uh, for years. Um, we'll get into that, but a quick recap. Uh, last week, we had Dr. David Katz uh, talk about how to eat, uh, something simple yet difficult also. Um, that replay is available. Uh, I've had lots of great feedback from that, including the recording. People saying, hey, even the, the recipe suggestions were fabulous. Um, before that, we had uh, Susan Helms, a uh, retired three-star Air Force general who had spent 211 days in space. Um, that replay is also available. Uh, really interesting insights about what it's like to think about space travel and sort of the world outside planet Earth. Um, and then we began this uh, series. Oh, sorry. Hold on. We skipped. Oh, no, we'll get to it. Uh, Annie was uh, one of the first people we had this uh, fall. Uh, talking about her book, How to Decide, professional poker players, some really interesting stories there. And then, of course, we had Rakesh Karana, uh, someone Roger and I were just talking about, uh, who is dean of Harvard College, talk about education in sort of a time of COVID and sort of how to adapt to mental health and all the other issues that students are facing uh, and the dramas that come with that. So uh, really wonderful conversation. And all of those are available for replay on my website, which is just my last name.com, mansharamani.com. And then lastly, since I know we have some uh, HBR press folks on the, uh, on the line, uh, we will not only be supporting Roger's book today and promoting that, but also Think for Yourself, which is available. So um, with that said and that background, um, let's go ahead and begin. So Roger, thanks for taking the time to join me. I'm thrilled to have you. Well, um, thanks for having me. That, uh, I really appreciate that. that that's a nice, a, a nice lineup of guests you've had. Yeah, well, so far that's been fun. Um, but uh, you know, I'm not going to spend much time on your background, Roger. So I'll start actually with a little personal story. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Roger years ago when I was a PhD student at MIT, working on the topic of innovation and entrepreneurship and strategy. And I'm still pleased to have one of the books he wrote. I think it was your first book, right? It was the first book, Billy oh, Virus, two thousand two. Which was one of my favorite reads from graduate school, such that I kept it. A lot of the books I read, and uh, this is a statement actually about your ideas versus the ideas of some of our peers in business academia. A lot of the other books didn't quite come with me after graduate school. <laughs> um, this one was one that I kept, so I'm pleased to say that. Uh, but you have a, a new book out, uh, this book, uh, which just came out uh, this uh, recently, right? Um, yes, uh, September 29th. Perfect. Um, which I just finished reading and is fabulous. So why don't we begin, Roger, with you? Why'd you write it? 
Well, I, I wrote it uh, as a result of a study that I did starting in 2013. In 2013, when I stepped down as dean, I, uh, I went to run a research center. Uh, and the, the thing that I was worried about at the time was the stagnation of middle incomes in the US. Uh, because I, I had this belief that, that one of the things that made American democratic capitalism work so well for so long was that the middle class in America over the wide swath of time had advanced quite, quite uh, smartly in, in almost all years. And that seemed to have slowed down. And that, so I said, what happens, what happens when the median family which I kind of equate with the swing voter. I mean, they aren't exactly the swing voter, but that band around the median in income, uh, I, I would argue, is the swing voter who decides whether to perpetuate the current, the, the current situation uh, and the current way of running the country or say we want something else. And my, my belief was as long as that middle income voter uh, uh, was feeling like next year was going to be better than this year. If I work hard, save and invest, they would support the current system. If that stopped, would they still support it? So that was, that was the motivation for studying whether it was true that this had changed dramatically, if it had, why, and what were the implications for democratic capitalism in the future? Interesting. So it's, so it's more than just the inequality. It, it, there's something more substantial you're getting at here, which is sort of the whole system effectively. Yes, that's right. I, uh, it, it turns out inequality has a profound impact, but it, uh, that actually wasn't the, the, the motivator. Uh, I mean, I'd done enough you know, work on economic policy to, to know that it was an interesting phenomenon. So people tend to think when they think about inequality is the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. That actually isn't happening in the US. The difference between say the 10th percentile and 50th percentile. So a genuinely poor person or poor family, you can do it either way and the median, that hasn't changed much. What's changed dramatically, hugely is the difference between the 50th and the 99th uh, percentile. But I was more, more interested in why the stagnation. Yep. Now, that inequality it comes back to bite because average income increases have not been not been bad over the last, you know, forty-ish ish years. The economy has slowed down some from from the post-war heydays, but that usually happens with the richest country in the world. Other people tend to tend to catch up. So, average GDP per capita real growth has been fine. But it turns out now that if you look at it, the vast majority of that economic income growth has gone to the top 10%, 1%, one-tenth of 1%, one one-hundredth of 1%. So what we see as inequality, it, the problematic aspect of it to me is it's just taking too much growth from what would be the, the median family. The median family used to get a lot of the benefits of that growth, they're getting a very little now, like a surprisingly little now. Yeah, yeah. So is it fair to say this is really just the delta between return on capital and return on labor? I mean, if I'm, I'm trying to put 
of framing around what you're saying here. And when I think of it as a return on capital continuing to rise and a return on labor getting stagnant or shrinking or sort of getting pinched, if you will, um, is that a little bit of what you're saying here? Because that's sort of what it, that's what it feels like when I see the NASDAQ hitting an all new high or hitting yep. stock markets going up, maybe not today or not this morning, but generally they have been doing well uh, recently. While I see mass unemployment, when I see workers of restaurants and hotels, and you know, you and I were talking even before we started this, uh, 10, 20% hotel occupancy. Um, there's, there's a delta between Main Street and Wall Street, and you can think of it as labor and capital at some level. Yes, yes and no. So what I what I uh, would argue is that labor has split. So if you go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, the battle uh, was between capital and labor for the spoils of their joint economic activity. You know, raw materials, capital, labor, put them together, create some value by creating a product you know you dig you dig iron ore out of the ground you make it into steel you you sell it okay who gets it the people who own the iron ore assets the the labor that made it into into steel or the shareholders of the of the steel company somewhere around the the 70s labor split into two subcategories talent right and if you will routine uh, labor and and so and this is something that apparently really shocked the hell out of uh, Thomas Piketty when he when he did his research because he was used to in uh, studying Europe France and there the battle still was between labor and capital and he was stunned to find that actually a lot of the economic returns were going to labor right people who worked in banks and and, and insurance companies and uh, and and the like. Um, and, and what he was observing was what I, I wrote about in, uh, uh, back about, you know, I guess 15 years ago now, which is, which is that, that now we have a three-way battle between, between relatively routine labor that doesn't have, uh, much decision-making authority, right? They're essentially in the category of mainly being told what to do and how to do it. Versus labor that has decision-making uh, authority, it is it is asked to use essentially the muscle between <laughs> between their ears to to decide things, and capital. And so I actually think that what's happened is that that middle category is winning the biggest, not actually the holders of uh, of capital. And we have this new economy yep. where having talent talent that can express itself uh, economically is the, is the emerging uh, force. Yeah. In fact, it's led to, in, in my view, it's led to a, a political uh, kind of shift and, and, uh, and that, that, it isn't, that it isn't over yet. We, we have political instability in the following uh, sense. Uh, until the, the 70s, the political alignment was in the US, right? Democrats with what, right? Labor and Republicans with capital. And the Republicans would argue, we have to make sure capital gets a big enough return so that they hire uh, workers so that all the workers will be fine. So we, you may not all be capitalists, but you should vote for us. 
uh, the, the Democrats would say the nasty capitalists are going to take all your money unless you vote for us and we make it good for, for labor. So I, and I'm not, I'm not trying to caricature one in, the, in, in any negative way. They, they, were, they both had, a, had, a, had a, an argument. Then I would argue uh, kind of what happened was that, was that the Democratic Party started to move towards capital. And for me, the marker was when Bill Clinton signed into law the 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 uh, uh, the legislation that said uh, you can't uh, deduct more than a million dollars in CEO salary for in, uh, income tax purposes. He was responding to pension funds getting mad at how much CEOs were making talent, right? Uh, and so it was uh, him aligning the Democratic Party behind capital. Right, and and I would argue that Barack Obama did that too in in the in the uh, bailout of the global financial crisis, protect capital, to take care of of labor, and the Republicans have have actually shifted to backing talent. Interesting. Right? So yeah. the only way that you can possibly make sense of of saying carried interest. Yep. Uh, and hedge is 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 should be taxed at a capital gains rate, is if you are slavishly adherent to talent, because that is talent making a, an insane amount of money without capital, right? It's other people's capital. They make the twenty percent uh, carry. Interesting. Yeah, they call it carry, right? Uh, they uh, they they call it uh, capital gain. So so this is why I think you had a an increasingly sad uh, labor uh, because. Actually, the Democrats uh, abandoned them, I, I believe, uh, in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, they abandoned them. And so you have two of the three factors, talent with a friend, uh, uh, capital with a friend, and labor without one. Yep. And, that's, and that's, to me, why you had the rise of Bernie, Bernie Sanders, is, well, is in part to have somebody to say, to say I, I like you. Now, it also arguably is something that uh, that uh, Trump used to his advantage saying yep. saying saying essentially nobody cares about you anymore and I do yep well it's, true or not who knows I'm saying but that that was his appeal sure well it's interesting I mean I think this idea of being left behind with no voice disenfranchised if it's just labor and your three sort of bucket world um, does lend itself very nicely to a for it's sort of a fertile political ground for someone to step forward and say, hey, it's not your fault. Whose fault is it? It's their fault. And it could be internal to a country and we'd call that populism. Or it's the elites, it's the perhaps the talent, those in power, or it could be external and say, it's not your fault. It's the Chinese, it's the blank. And we insert make blank great again, make Britain yep. great again, make America great again, make India, make Brazil, yep. Mexico. I mean, this is a global phenomenon. Yes. Right? I, th I think so, and and I think it's this this emergence of talent uh, that doesn't need capital. Capital, in my view, in the modern economy, capital needs talent more than talent needs uh, uh, capital. Yeah, the world is awash with capital, uh, and talent is just saying, you know, if you if if you want me, uh, you're going to have to. Uh, you're going to have to pay me. Uh, and, and sports talent, it's entertainment talent, it's managerial talent, it's investment talent, all of, all of that. So 
Roger, a lot of people have talked about the sort of CEO compensation bubble and sort of the, mm-hmm. the, the rising, you know, these ratios of average worker to CEO comp, et cetera. It sounds like you suggest that's going to continue. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And, and, and again, I don't think that people really, really understand what's, what's, uh, what's going on uh, on this front, right? It's, it's sort of like, well, we'll get CEO compensation kind of uh, back to what, it, to what it should be versus the normal worker. I mean, it, it, it's not going to do that on its own. I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to legislate it. But what, what, what we haven't gotten ready for and don't have an answer for is in this world, where talent is flexing its muscles to an extent that it, you know, it, it has no limits, uh, right? It's, it's like successful hedge fund managers are saying, no, 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 two and 20, that's not enough. How about uh, four and 40 uh, and, and, and the like? They're, they're just saying there, there are absolutely no bounds uh, to how, how far we will, we will take it. Um, so, so, Yes, it, it's an it's it, it's an endemic thing, and 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 one of the questions that the, the fundamental questions that has to be asked is 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 how in a world where labor and talent have diverged, uh, how are we going to create a world in which democratic capitalism uh, uh, prevails? Uh, what has to happen is that median family, I believe, has to advance smartly. And up till this 70, 1976, I should say in the book, then this 1976 breakpoint, the bicentenary of, of America, uh, the median family income was growing at 2.4% real per year. And why that's meaningful is that it means it doubles every 30 years, which is approximately a generation. Now it's on a rate to double every hundred years over three generations. That just doesn't, I, I, I just can't believe that that feels for a median family like, oh goody, right? This is, this is working out. And so that's why you have this sort of sense of, this isn't working for me. Um, I don't know why, and I'm gonna do something different uh, because the same is not working for me. So, what your concern with democratic capitalism uh, is really, ha- that's a sort of two axis problem, right? Sort of there's yeah. democracy and authoritarianism and there's capitalism and socialism. Yeah. And, you know, historically, I think we'd have democratic capitalists against authoritarian socialists. Yes. Uh, the Chinese are presenting a model of the world that might be in contrast to this axis of sort of democratic capitalism versus authoritarian socialism and saying, they're saying, well, we got sort of capitalism, but it's kind of authoritarianism. Authoritarian. Yeah, not kind of, <laughs> really. <laughs> well, sure. I'm trying to yeah. be polite. <laughs> no, no. But yes. Well, I'm not polite about this because it is, it is the great, it is the great threat, the greatest threat to what I think you and I and many others uh, believe in is, which is that the will of the majority determines how we rule. And even better, you have a, you have a system where the will of the majority actually to rule comes in keeping also with, we have to take care of the minorities, uh, you know, who, who voted against us essentially. That beautiful system um, is, has now got a genuine existential threat, which is authoritarian capitalism. Uh, and that is, that is the Chinese. They, they've got, 
uh, in income inequality uh, that's as, that's equal to or even worse than uh, uh, American, depending on which numbers you, you buy. But let's just say it's it's no better uh, than 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 the than the U.S. But that's not a problem. Right? That's not a problem. You do not need the majority of the people to vote for you. Right? If they don't like you, you kill them like flat out, right? I mean, it's, I mean, and that's not, that's not some judgment. That's like, that's like pretty much factual. I mean, you get put in prison. You, if you're, you know, if you're a Muslim minority, you, you get sent to concentration uh, type camps, uh, you know? And so, so that is the threat. That's why I think we have to think really carefully about making, making this work because if it loses, then democracy in my view, will have lost as a cherished form of political organization. You know, Roger, one of the really uh, thoughtful books I read recently was by Shoshana Zuboff about the age of surveillance capitalism mm -hmm. um, and the logic that we can have data now on all sorts of individuals, the surveillance state, the sort of the lack of privacy and therefore the authoritarian grip that that enables. Um, you know, the Chinese have their social credit score systems, et cetera. Um, America has Google and Facebook, et cetera. Um, I'm sort of curious how you think about the role of tech in that democracy, sort of individual freedom and authoritarianism dynamic um, and sort of this logic of surveillance capitalism, which is, um, you know, your individual freedoms, which have been so cherished are now, you know, privacy is not a given, so to say. Yeah. Uh, and, and how mean, that fits into this story that you've got. Sure. Well, I mean, part, part of the tech thing is now a recognition uh, that my book talks about that we're, we're producing more Pareto distributions, right? So the net network effects are producing more distributions like the Instagram followership distribution. Yep. I, a good metaphor for tech, right? Which is that the median person on Instagram has between 100 and 150 followers. The person with the, the individual with the most followers on Instagram, at least last time I checked, was Cristiano Ronaldo at uh, over 200 million. Um, so that's a Pareto distribution where most people have relatively little and a few people have a whole lot. From yeah. Wolfredo Pareto, who observed that 20% of Italians own 80% of the land. So um, we're getting more of those, those distributions when, and it, it happens when effects become the causes of more still of that effect. So having more Instagram followers is an effect. Yeah. So when you go on Instagram, you look at who's got followers and you, and you follow the people who have more and it gets more. And it, you're right. It's a snowball, snowball going, uh, going downhill. So that is the biggest impact of tech in some sense on on the workings of the economy is more of these network type effects, a preferential attachment uh, is what it is, you know, technically called that drive towards these outcomes. And then, then those entities have massive amounts of power yep. and to a great extent, the, they use that massive amount of power to abuse the people who gave it the, the, the power, right? I mean, it, it is abusive in my view, for Amazon to get where they've gotten to on the basis of, we will have all these reviews 
that that users that that users provide us, so that you will know what's the best product. And it's then abusive to say, yeah, but we're gonna we're gonna give special preference to the Amazon product uh, over over the reviews, and we're kind of gonna fudge that for you. That's that's that is that is that is the classic sort of abusive uh, behavior that comes from monopoly. Uh, monopoly power. Now, again, Amazon has done a world of good and everything and Facebook, et cetera, but they're just clearly Google, Google saying, well, you can't use a, a, an alternative uh, provider to AdSense if you're going to be on our platform. That's just abusive. Yeah. Uh, and so, so that, that's the, the, the biggest effect of, of tech now on, on the economy. And I think we've got to be careful of, of, having an environment in which those, those uh, extreme outcomes are, are kind of allowed to happen. We have laws on the books and I'm very pleased that we're using Sherman too against, against Google. Uh, now we'll see if Google is indeed not guilty, then great, good, good, uh, good for them. But if they are, then it's time to do something. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious also what you think about the data components that associate with big tech and the nudgeability that sort of that they gain in that, right? So as I've been reading to see how desperate they are to, to hoover up all data that's available, right? They want your Nest thermostat so they know which room you're in when, and maybe they can tell from the slight temperature change that you've entered the room at that point in time. They've got the sensors that they know from your Android device where you are, where you've gone, where you're coming from, which website you were at before. They could try to interpolate your mood and your logic and your thinking process and what may be in your mind, such that you're highly likely, maybe not certain, but highly likely to be nudgeable in this direction yeah. and the political ramifications of that. Nope, Roger, are you there? Uh-oh, looks like we got a pause here. We'll have to check and see if we get... No, Roger, we can't hear you. I'm hoping you're okay there, or maybe it's me. Um, let me see what I can do. Apologies, everyone. One second. Uh, my question was really about the surveillance capitalism uh, and how that dynamic comes into play. And there's a great book. I'll talk for a second while we see if Roger comes back. Um, so I'll stop his video and then restart it and see if that works. Uh, but, you know, there was a, uh, a surveillance capitalism book by Shoshana Zuboff. Uh, Alex Pentland, Sandy Pentland is a, uh, a professor at MIT, runs the Media Lab, who wrote a book called Social Physics. And Social Physics was this book that sort of articulated, look, all of this big data exists. We can understand the nature of human to human interaction such that it becomes predictable, such that we can have some degree of certainty over how and what may transpire with a formerly unknown dynamic, right? Sort of you have your preferences, I have my preferences, we come together for a transaction and we may or may not know what comes of that. And in that process, we reveal our preferences. That's the sort of economic logic. Well, uh, this professor at MIT, Sandy Pentland, uh, concluded that actually we've got enough big data available now that we can actually predict human behavior and how it's likely to transpire in different dynamics. Um, 
And so, you know, I think that is what I was getting at when I talked about surveillance capitalism and the risks that come from that and the dynamics thereof. Um, so, you know, that's what I was going to ask Roger about and sort of the impact on democratic capitalism. Um, so we are seeing some of that happen. Obviously, the Chinese have their system uh, of uh, a social credit score. And for those that don't know what that is, the Chinese are keeping track of every single person's activity, whether or not you post positively or negatively against the Chinese Communist Party, whether or not you are uh, involved in describing, uh, you know, a good, you're a good behaved person in a social sense, uh, whether you've broken the law, etc. And that will impact whether or not you get access to credit, whether you have, uh, you know, the right school options, whether or not you get the right real estate, whether you're allowed to buy the, the things that are in short supply, etc. So, you know, we do have dynamics like that that are transpiring elsewhere in the world and the impact they're going to have here uh, on us, I think, is, uh, you know, being infused via the tech companies. So there it's the government, here it's tech companies, and we're seeing a little bit of that. So um, I want to encourage anyone that might have a question to channel your questions through uh, the Q&A tab here or the chat. I'm happy to address them while we wait to see if Roger's able to rejoin us. Uh, he is actually down in Turks and Caicos right now, so maybe the internet went out or there's some dynamic thereof that, that we can come back to. Um, but I will also comment. Oh, here he is. He's back. Uh, so Hi, Vikram. You're, you're back. Vikram, I'm very sorry. The power went out. And... No, no problem. I was just telling everyone here we managed to, <laughs> to keep most people here. A couple of people lost faith, but uh, I was describing the social credit score system in, uh, in China. Uh, yes. In China and the surveillance capitalism yeah. that occurred. And the people. data question, your, your, yes. your data question. So, yeah. so I, Vikram, I, I may end up being completely wrong on this, but I, I try to categorize things, uh, and you would know this from all your MIT system dynamics background. As, as, as balancing loops versus accelerating loops. Like right. there are some things, some things that I just see as the snowball going uh, down the hill and unless we change the system dramatic, it, dramatically, it's gonna stop, it's gonna keep on going. And so for, for, um, uh, for a CEO compensation, uh, the power of talent, there isn't an easy compensating uh, mechanism. On the data front, I, I honestly think this is an imbalance of knowledge, right? Whereas, whereas people do not know yet uh, what's being done with their data. Not enough people uh, uh, know, and there will be a reaction, right? So thus far, it's been it's 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 literally being the Maginot line. It's like the the the, the, the Nazis just go. And 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 uh, roll over uh, the the low countries in the because there is no opposition. Uh, they don't really get what's happening to them, and I think people are uh, are reacting uh, yeah. uh, to that. And and so there will be it. it th I think Google and Facebook and Amazon are going to look at this as the absolute golden age where the idiots uh, that they that, who are yeah. their customers. Yeah. Customers slash idiots were were just giving them everything for uh, for free, and I think that each of the three of them's biggest threat uh, to their business success is themselves. Yeah. So yeah. if they if they're now used to the notion that we're, we have idiots as customers, uh, and we will treat them uh, with uh, in the nasty way that that is handiest for us they will all be gone. 
Yeah. And, and I know that's a big statement statement to make, but I, I, I believe they will. And, and uh, unless they start to recognize that people are, are getting uh, smarter and I think people will, you know, will take, uh, will take action. Um, and, you know, and, you know, I'm in a sense, one of them, I refuse to go on. I'm not on Facebook. I'm one of the only half of humanity that isn't on Facebook because I don't, I don't I'm, trust Facebook farther than I can, uh, farther yeah. than I can throw them. I, I wouldn't not have an Alexa in my house. You know, if you paid me, if you paid me a million dollars a year to put Alexa in my, in my house, I would say, no, thank you. Yeah, I've disengaged myself from a lot of them. I've yanked it. We had a couple of Alexas yank those out. I've moved, I'm moving my primary mail off of Gmail towards Proton Mail to be secure and private. I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of doing all of that. I don't, you know, I've never really been big on Facebook. Yeah. So you're part of the compensating loop, right? Yeah, I'm trying to. Right? In, yeah, in, in, some sen- to. In, yeah. in some sense. So, so yeah. I, I, now, do, do I think Shoshona should write a book like she's written? Yes, because it's a warning manual, yes. uh, essentially. Do I think it's going to end up in that, in that mode and we're doomed to that, that mode? No, uh, because, because typically, typically, right, for every, uh, if you think about it through history and you ask the question, when there's been a, dominant offensive weapon created Mm -hmm. do the losers just sit there and take it right i would argue down through the history of time the losers uh figure out kind of a way to defeat it so when you put you know kind of men in armor on horses that start to run down people on their on their uh on their feet uh and blow them away what do you invent those little caltrips, which are those little things that you that you throw in front of the horses that make them uh, lame, they fall down, and then then you kill the guy who's just uh, fallen off. Yeah. Right? Did we allow the U-boats to perpetually terrorize uh, the the uh, uh, transports in the in, in the North Atlantic? No. What did we invent? Sonar, and then eighty-five percent of all all men, unfortunately, who went out to sea in a U-boat during the during the war did not come back alive. Yep. So, it, uh, dreadnoughts, you know, long guts begot dreadnoughts. ICBMs begot a, ABMs. Yep. There, there, there is always a counter weapon sure. uh, uh, created, and we will. There will be a counter weapon to data hoovering, uh, and and it, it mainly will be it mainly will be you know, uh, boxing them out of uh of your life plus plus pol- political power right sure. where consumers will get together and say regulation they yeah. Can't do this. yeah they can't do this can they and the, gov- and the government will finally say oh now that we actually understand what they do rather than asking them stupid idiotic questions and at, 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 at a senate committee uh and and you'll get you'll get snapped back so Roger, I want to change gears for a second here and ask yeah, a couple sure. of different questions. So, um, in fact, since we're going to, I'm going to ask you about your favorite movie or, or miniseries, I'm going to highlight one that I just watched recently that's on topic here. Uh, not necessarily my favorite, but for those that haven't seen The Social Dilemma, uh, it's a Netflix uh, documentary, uh, sort of documentary drama, about an hour. It's about everything Roger and I were just talking about for the oh, last okay. About data, hoovering it up, nudging, and sort of the implications of it. Uh, highly recommended. The social dilemma. But anyway, 
Roger, what's your favorite movie? So I have a, a favorite serious movie and a favorite not serious movie. Okay. So my favorite not serious movie of all time is This Is Spinal Tap. Okay. Uh, uh, and it's, it's just because it's hilarious and it's a, it's a funny social uh, commentary. And my, my favorite serious movie is actually an ancient Spencer Tracy movie called Bad Day at Black Rock. So probably oh. none of the people on this call probably have ever, ever uh, watched it. But the okay. story is uh, Spencer Tracy comes back from World War II. Uh, he's had his leg, you know, shot off. So he's now, uh, he's now uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, crippled to a certain extent. And he's wanting to give the medal of his sort of buddy uh, who's Japanese uh, to his to his father? That's what he's they promised him while he was dying. He would give his give his medal to his father. So he's come to this little town in the middle of nowhere uh, to 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 give uh, a medal to the father who's lost his son in the war, and uh, he 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 has all sorts of problems uh, because he's, he finds out in due course that that the townspeople. Uh, have have, uh, have essentially murdered this this guy because he's Japanese, and so it's oh. the story. It's the story of him surviving because they want to kill him too. Him him surviving uh, despite being cri being uh, crippled, and I love it because Spencer Tracy uh, has all sorts of indignities performed against him, and keeps calm and resolute the whole time. Interesting. Interesting. Good. I uh, recommend it highly. Perfect. So how about a book? Any novels or, ra or, yes. or nonfiction books that you'd recommend? Lord, Lord of the Flies. Okay. Ah. Lord of the Flies. Uh, because it, it is such a metaphor uh, for, for life, uh, which, is, which is that without, without good leadership, yeah. there is no depths to which humanity will not sink. Yeah. Of course, the story is of the kids who are shipwrecked on an island and they decide without any adult supervision that that forming gangs and uh, uh, killing people and sticking their heads on a stake is sort of a good idea. Uh, and and, you know, at the end, the ship with the captain sails into into the harbor and they line up uh, and and, you know, act like good well-behaving uh, schoolboys uh and and i've just seen this over and over vikram mm -hmm. in 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 my in my own life if you have a leadership vacuum people will do just exceedingly bad things and will fall prey to to you know kind of you know terrible leaders in this case the leader of the group that was chopping the chopping the heads heads off who otherwise was kind of well behaved when when he it was all boys in this case when he uh, uh, was if you will reporting to uh, a sensible leader so uh, that's yeah. my that's my favorite oh. favorite book and and you know when I got to the Rotman School it was just so apropos the Rotman School had just been through a big scandal the previous dean had resigned and there was a scandal over everything everybody's fighting with one another there are factions and everything and I was warned I was warned that there would be you know faculty council there would be wars breaking out in faculty council with people yelling and screaming at, at one another um, and nothing of the sort happened 
we in fact never had a vote in 15 years at faculty council, actually. It was all by acclamation. Um, and it's because, uh, you know, I provided a direction. <laughs> it, I, I was the leader, the kind of leader that they needed. And, um, and it all worked out fine so that everybody was happy. There weren't winners and losers. Everybody was happy. Uh, and so in some sense, uh, I had to take heart from Lord of the Flies that you're not inheriting something that will continue to be fractious and fractious and fractious. No, you can fix it. Um, so that's why I like it. Well, so it's interesting, Roger. I've had a handful of questions that have come into me, uh, some on my text, some on the system here. Uh, and one of them seems apropos to ask it here, which is, all right, so you're a Canadian. Uh, yes. You spent time in both the US and Canada, uh, and you've obviously studied the, the US system to some depth, and you're talking about leadership. Uh, do you have thoughts about the political process that's currently underway and will culminate, or we hope will culminate next week in the United States with the presidential election? Yeah, well, I, I talk a, a little about it in the in the book, and and I guess what I'd say is that that it there's been there's been no time, at least in my living memory. Uh, and again, I've lived in the U.S. for about not quite half of my, my life, but a goodly chunk. But in my memory, where I feel like the electorate uh, has has got to knock off a a counterproductive way of behaving, yeah. um, which, which is to, to essentially uh, ask politicians to make lots of promises to them uh, that involve them doing nothing, <laughs> the electorate doing nothing. So I guess I'm old fashioned. I did like Kennedy's ask not uh, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Although I think it's a more, more balance than that, you know, if you do a lot for your country, uh, we'll do something for you too. Let's have a let's let's make a deal here, uh, and and uh, and so I wish there were a little more of that rather than the electorate kind of saying to both candidates, "Save me," uh, rather say, "Give me a job, give yeah. me a job that you want me to do." And if the the answer is your job is to pull a lever. Or you know, fill in fill in a particular circle on your on your ballot, and that's all you have to do. Then then that's not enough of an important yeah. uh, job. Yeah. And so so I, I'm avowedly apolitical. The book is completely apolitical. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be political uh, yeah. here. But yeah. I would say I don't like either candidate on this front. They yeah. are not. They're not asking. Uh, uh, for like Trump is saying, I'm going to make America great again. Joe Biden is, I'm going to heal all the divisions and wounds. What what are either of them saying uh, is the job of Americans? Yeah, and yeah. Americans, right? And maybe can Canadian by birth. Uh, I'm both an American and a Canadian citizen at this point. Um, but I do love you know kind of the can do kind of yeah. attitude. Of, of America, you probably, you know, you know, feel the same Vikram. It's, it's, it's like, you know, we can do this, we can get it done. So if you've got a whole country that's full of people like that, ask them to do something. 
Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, I've been I've been recently reading a lot about the space program and prep for my uh -huh. interview with Susan Helms and other things. It's inspirational when you go back and look at the U.S. space program. It's it, people are gathered up, and there is, in fact, I, I see in your book you call it insist on uh, reciprocal political relationships, yeah. and I think that's right. It's right. Uh, you know, ask what what how can we contribute, especially when you have an external competitive threat, and you know, you're right in saying China might be that. Right. So if that's the rallying force, then we could, as a society, come together and sort of it could be a positive development. And I agree. I'm, I'm a little disappointed that neither candidate has stepped forth to to uh, to present that version. I don't think I mean, you can correct me or anybody on, on the call can correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't feel as though there's been there's been that request yeah. uh, made. Uh, yeah. And so, and this is not inconsistent with my view of the leadership from Lord of the Flies. I mean, a, a leader <clears throat> harnesses the the capabilities of his her her followers to get something done. Uh, but it's the harnessing. It's just saying, "Hey, I think this would be an exciting direction to to head. If you think so too, here's what I need each one of you uh, to do." Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I swear for the last, like, it feels like for the last, like 10 elections, at, le at least it's been, here's what you can do. Pull the lever for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. So That's with five seconds of work. What I really do like about the book, Roger, since we're, since we're on the topic, uh, the second half of the book, for those that haven't read it, again, I highly recommend it, is all about solutions. It's sort of, you know, here's the agenda for the business team. Here's the agenda for the political folks. Here's the agenda for educators. Here's for citizens and what you can do. Um, and one of the ideas you mentioned there I found really uh, intriguing was this idea of tenure-based um, governance and voting rights, et cetera, for to, to get some of that longer term thinking. Because you know, one of the things that's been quite popular in the business press, as you're highly aware of, but is this idea of, well, we went so far towards shareholder capitalism that we need to go towards stakeholder capitalism. And I, you know, with some of the longer term oriented companies I've worked with, um, I find that concept sort of it doesn't quite work, right? Like in the long term, of course I care about my environment, I live in it. Of course I care about the community because I'm part of it. Of course I care about my workers because I don't have a business without them. Uh, so to me, it strikes me as a short-term versus long-term problem. And so with that solution that, you're, that you hint at there about sort of, hey, well, you can get people thinking differently, just give them different influence levels based on how long-term they are and maybe yes. that'll change it. So yeah. maybe describe that and sort of sure. tell a little more about it. Sure, well, the, the, it's, it's sort of based on the premise of if, if, if uh... Vikram, I mean, uh, uh, you ask me, you're, you've got some business idea, you ask me for uh, $10,000 uh, toward your, your, your business. And, and I say to you, and Vikram, um, I like your business idea. I'm not going to badger you about it. I just, I, tr I trust you to, to pursue it. And you have that money for 10 years. Uh, maybe after that, I'll ask for some dividends or something, but you've got the, you've got the money for 10 years. Or I say to you, Vikram, here's the $10,000, uh, but I can change my mind um, without uh, prior, prior uh, 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 consent uh, anytime I want uh, from the moment I hand it over to, uh, over to you. Which $10,000 would you value more, Vikram? <laughs> 
right? Right. Like, Duh. It's yeah. so it's so uh, you know obvious, and so the give, being given money that can be taken back kind of uh, uh, immediately, it just isn't a very valuable money. So a shareholder who says, I'm going to stick with you and then demonstrates that is a more valuable shareholder than one who flits, uh, flits in and out. So my, my argument is, is essentially up to, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, ten, 10 years uh, that you should get one additional voting right per share for every day you hold the share. So you can end up with, you know, 3,650 or 4,000 vote, uh, 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 kind of votes per share. So that if a nasty hedge fund, uh, activist hedge fund like Ackman or, or you know, Third Point or these, you know, just you know, kind of hyenas uh, come along uh, and buy your shares, let's say you are, you know, you've invested in my company and, and you've, you've got, you, you bought a share of my company, but you've, you've now got 4,000 uh, voting rights. If, if somebody comes along and says to you, I'll buy your share so that they can try and take over the company. Yep. Either say, you know, I'm going to keep it, or you you get go back down to one. It would make it it would make it extremely difficult for these activists to pull together the coalition uh, necessary to take take it over, and it would enable management to act in the long run rather than rather than in the in the short run. And it's totally do. I mean, it's it's totally doable. The French have the French have done it uh, with two to one. Uh, I'm just saying that's not nearly enough to have the capital market effects that you previously yeah. <clears throat> were de- were describing, or or that or that I that I want. And so, um, uh, so that that would be like, you know, kind of totally doable. And again, people will say, well, it will ensconce kind of uh, management. You know, kind of no, you know, kind of no, it won't. Right? Uh, it'll put them out. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it it, it right now. If if uh, uh, if you're a shareholder and you don't like what management is doing, you sh- uh, sell your share, and your share is worth one vote. In the new system, if you don't like management, you've you know I've I've uh, you know I've sold the company to some guy you think is now an idiot, and you're worried about <clears throat> your stake in it. You sell your share and you sh- and you sell it with one vote. It's no no different. Uh, just protects. Yeah. Yeah, and arguably potentially gives you more influence in the process to to change things, right? Yes, you are long term oriented. Yes, and, and you vote you vote all of these shares and say you're acting short term, and I'm going to vote my four thousand shares rather than my one share to say knock it off with that uh, that uh, short term hanky panky. Yeah. So uh, a question that I just got here in the in the Q and A tab uh, has to do with how do you how does your thinking come into play with large, dense populations, countries like India, et cetera, uh, given they're the future of emerging dynamics, if you will. Uh, and I'm gonna add a little tidbit there, Roger, to some of my thinking and some of the stuff I've talked about, which is you know, this idea of a demographic dividend in a time with technological innovation may no longer be valid. You used to think that large populations of unskilled labor, throw them together with some capital and bam, you build a middle class industrialization-based strategies. Not clear that's going to work these days. I mean, India may get manufacturing and they can get potentially uh, factories and export and production, but do they get the jobs that sort of suck up that unskilled labor pool and build a middle class? Yeah. 
I mean, I, I wish I had, I wish I had a great answer for that, but I, I do think it's the, the primary economic challenge of the next century. It's the countries with these huge labor pools to suck up. So, uh, you know, India, China, Nigeria, Indonesia, uh, Brazil, these are just huge, huge pools of unskilled uh, labor. And, and the history of the planet in, in its ability to create uh, kind of higher paying jobs has never, has never done it as fast as it would need to be done to suck up all the, and especially if you look at a Nigeria, let's say, with a very young, uh, young uh, uh, demographic. So there's going to be there's going to be this these tens of millions of, of of Nigerians going from boy to man, girl to to uh, uh, to woman, yeah. with no prospect of of uh, of a job. So I, I wish I had a I wish I had a great answer. I mean, I mean, I guess my my belief is that that these countries are going to have to make that you know like a you know, a super priority uh and not be wasting their their resources on kind of lots of lots of other things like a nigeria is going to have to be thinking about that rather than rather than you know taking oil out of the ground and and uh and uh, you know bribing everybody in in sight not to i mean it's just you know it's yeah. one of these countries that is just so poor, sadly so corrupt um um i mean i to, to me i like the direction india has has gone in terms of recognizing that the service sector is the biggest sector and india is not to my way of thinking you probably know better as obsessed with it has to be a manufacturing job to be a worthwhile worthwhile uh, uh, job, um, and instead said no services is is the future. That is going to be 70, 80 percent of all the jobs on on the on the on the planet. Let's be great at a bunch of growing service industries, and that has sucked up a, a kind of a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, workers. But it's still it's still a huge a huge uh, task. I do like um, uh, Nandan Nilakani is a, is a good friend of mine. I do like systemic infrastructural things like the unique identifier as, as the kind of thing you've got to, uh, got to do. You've got to make sure you know who the people are so that you can get benefits uh, uh, to them. I mean, I understand there's privacy concerns <clears throat> about having a unique identifier um, in my view for India there's such an imbalance between between the private the problematic private privacy concerns and the enormous benefits uh, of, of that so putting in place the infrastructure that enables uh, enables uh, the the government to be more efficient at dealing with a mass population and then and then leaning into a future uh, are two things I I like about India. Yeah. I, mean, I hate China being totalitarian, but I think saying we're going to be the manufacturing uh, hub of the world, that, that was also smart. Like, I'm a strategist at heart. It's have a strategy. Stand, stand yeah. for, uh, uh, for uh, something. See, I don't know. Brazil, Brazil just seems to be on an, a little bit of an old-fashioned um, import substitution kind of mode of, of, of thinking that I'm not sure that gets you all that, all that uh, uh, far. Yeah, 
Yeah, interesting. Like um, I bet on India over Brazil uh, on 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 uh, on that front. India feels like more like it's got a strategy. It's interesting when I talked to I talked to some Indian government leaders and the advice I thought was pertinent, although I think what you're giving is probably more sound. I I was like, look, you got to focus on three things: education, education, and education. Yeah. Because you yeah. got to upskill, and I don't care which direction you're going, you got to build an infrastructure to, to to get people capable, give them some 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 know-how. Yeah. If you, um, well, no, I I think that's that 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 would go along with my infrastructure point, like build yeah. the productive infrastructure, and 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 uh, and certainly education is, and there there I think we can be encouraged, Vikram, right? Which is I think the the unit cost of of education, right, is plummeting right it's just plummeting uh because we had one mode before you build a school you hire a full-time teacher that teacher teaches like 30 or 40 maybe 50 kids in, in a yeah. crowded classroom you know that's been that's been totally blown away uh uh now in terms of the cost structure like that's just that's just at a cost that india can never afford to have 30 person classrooms for 1.5 4 billion, well, however many kids are in a 1.4 billion population. Uh, but, you know, with cheap laptops, sure. better internet, and then learning technologies and, and, and tools, I, 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 I suspect the cost per student could be maybe between a hundredth and a thousandth of what it, what it would have been 10 or 15 years ago. So that, that would also say your advice is... Yeah even more sensible advice uh, because before, like before it would have been sure, 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 Vikram, we can invest in education, but that would take, you know, a hundred trillion dollars <throat> to do it now. Yep. Maybe not. Maybe not. Yep. So uh, running out of time, but I want to squeeze in at least one or two more questions here, Roger. Sure. So one uh, which actually builds on one of my favorite references you make in your book to quote unquote, the overconfident reductionists, yeah. <laughs> right? Which I, uh, I think is part of the problem of educating in silos, et cetera, uh, or in having disciplinary department-based structures. Uh, but the question asked is, well, can you help me understand the future of the MBA? Is the, uh, does the MBA as a degree have a future? in this world of changing dynamics and this idea of wanting people to be integrators in thinking processes rather than um, you know, uh, siloed uh, experts, if you will. Well, um, I, you know, I, one of the rewards for being named Business School Dean of the Year in 2013 was to be invited to the Academy of Management to give an address on the future of the MBA. Um, so that was 2013 and in that I to this to the audience I said you know at the Marines they say uh, boot camp they say look to the right look to the left only one of the three of you is going to be here at the end of this I said look you know four to the left and five to the right and uh, uh, 20 years from now only one of you is going to be here so I predicted that there would be one-tenth as many full-time tenured stream business uh, MBA academics uh, uh, in, in uh, 20 years. And I still believe that. So I think business MBA education is heading to a, an, an absolute demolition, uh, and unless, unless the, uh, the MBA returns to focusing on a high value solution, yeah. which is to actually teach 
people how to make general management decisions, um, it it'll uh, it'll wilt down to something very small. Yes, and that's that's it. <laughs> Plug for the opposable mind, um, which is which is that's that's what you've that's what you've got to do. You've got to you've got to say if you're facing what appears to be a conflict between what marketing would say and what HR would 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 say on 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 this. What do you do? Uh, the CEO has to make that decision. We, uh, the MBA world, does not teach anything whatsoever about that decision. Nothing about that decision. Uh, I wish I could say Harvard Business School uh, did. Uh, you know, I describe you know uh, the uh, my experience my experience there, waiting to be taught that and figuring out that I would never be. Uh, and never be uh, taught it. So, I am not very sanguine about uh, about MBA uh, education, unfortunately. And it's just shown uh, little inclination to uh, to face up to that. Okay, so I can't end on a negative note like yeah, that. Sorry, that is a bit <laughs> That's okay. I want to see what positive tidbit can you leave us with since we've run out of time i don't want to we've got a bunch of questions but we'll we'll keep them on uh, on hold for now roger but uh, what, what positive optimistic thought can you leave us with about either the future of leadership management or you know how we navigate through all this uncertainty we're feeling yeah i mean i i guess i i think citizens have a huge amount of power uh, uh to do things i think i think we've we've fallen into this somebody else will take care of it for us thing and uh, americans have to have to show the resilience of saying no uh, i'm interested in making a change and one of the simplest things i talk about is multi-homing right you may love facebook that's okay but don't get 100% of your newsfeed from uh, Facebook. Subscribe to a local newspaper and watch network uh, television. Uh, you may like Amazon Prime, fine. Buy half your stuff from Amazon Prime, but sp split the others around. That is a small step you can take that will have a huge disproportionate effect on the future of, of democratic capitalism. And anybody can, uh, can do that and make, it, make a difference. So that would be my, my optimistic view. Perfect. Well, Roger, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for taking the time while you're on uh, a little holiday trip there. Really appreciate it. Uh, for those that uh, that haven't gotten uh, the book, I'd highly encourage you to go get it. Uh, when More Is Not Better, Roger's latest book, although I am going to stay biased, Roger. I know you say it's not, not a bestseller, but I think this is one of Roger's better ones in terms of thinking. Uh, uh, and so that was one of my favorites, and I'm going to still stick that stick with that. Uh, but the, this, when more is not better is, is also worth the time to read. So, uh, Roger, thank you very much. Uh, I'll look forward to seeing you again. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Take care. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. As a reminder, the video replay of today's episode is available at www.mansharamani.com. Finally, if you've not already done so, we encourage you to subscribe to the Think for Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you. Thank you.